Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane. We're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today, we're going to look at the Holy Gospel according to Luke, and it's chapter 23, verses 35 to 43. And it's, uh, it's Luke's uh, reflection upon the crucifixion of Jesus and what transpires as Jesus is upon the cross. It's interesting that the church uses this as a gospel for the Feast of Christ the King during the, during the cycle C of the readings. And so we're challenged then to find in this, this very complicated notion of kingship and this very kind of contradictory notion of, of, the, of reigning from the cross, of the glory of the cross. We know that, for instance, um, in John's Gospel, the glory of the Lord is, um, is, refers essentially to his crucifixion. And so standing at the very center of our understanding of who Jesus is and who he is in relationship to the world in which he lived and lives still, um, <clears throat> we come across these, these strange paradoxes, these strange contradictions in our mind. Because if, in fact, the Church chooses this gospel for the Feast of Christ the King, how can we possibly you know, say, well, the, his, his kingship is manifest in this, in this dreadful scene that we have. And the gospel begins, the people stayed there before the cross watching Jesus. As for the leaders, they jeered at him. He saved others, they said, let him save himself as he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. We have to remember here that over the cross, what Pilate wrote was um, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. <clears throat> The soldiers mocked him too, and when they approached to offer him vinegar, they said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Above him there was an, an inscription, this is the king of the Jews. So what we find then is, is the, the symbol of the, and, and our crucifixes we have it as I-N-R-I, Jesus Nazarenus Rex Iudeorum. And, um, and, and so what, what we have already in the beginning of this is the title of the Christ, the title of King, and yet at the same time, the misery of the cross. So think we have, we have to put this into our mind and we, we have to reflect upon this. I mean, our idea of kingship, what is our idea of kingship? As Americans, it's not really a, something woven deep into our culture. Um, only a few hundred years ago, however, we, we were part of the British Empire and we were under the King of England. Um, and, uh, and, and actually, apparently, from things that I've been reading lately on the American Revolution, that the majority of colonists in this country would, chose to stay loyal to the King and that it was the minority that uh, pulled off the American Revolution. Um, that is, of course... Um, kind of irrelevant in one way. In another way, it shows that there is something inside of most people that has a recognition of kind of an ideal sense of authority. Um, certainly King George III was not an ideal uh, image of authority by any means, nor are, most, nor are most monarchs of any kind. And yet at the same time, there is this sense that 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 there's some kind of security, I guess, in, uh, in something that's kind of above the fray. And uh, so 
So Jesus um, now is the king of the Jews, but he is in the eyes of the world the failed king of the Jews. For they jeered at him, and they said to him, save others. And if he, They said, let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. In other words, he is in ultimate and absolute disgrace. And so they're mocking his title as king of the Jews. They're mocking his title as the Christ. For they see in him the total and complete failure of any kind of earthly sense of messiahship, any kind of earthly sense of kingship. We know that those Hebrews that did, in fact, um, anticipate the coming of a messiah anticipated a glorious figure, a figure somewhat like David and Solomon, some great kings who, who conquered nations and who ruled over territories and who were vastly, had vast wealth and all of this kind of thing. And, uh, and that the combination of kingship and warrior and general and all those kinds of things were tied up in the popular expectation so that when they say to themselves, if he is the Christ of God, in other words, if he is the Messiah, the chosen one, then let him save himself. In other words, fulfill our expectation of what the Messiah really is. Fulfill the demands of, of, uh, of human understanding and uh, simply ignore the manifestations of the divine in all of this that is transpiring. And I think that this is an opportunity for us as well to reflect upon the continuing presence of Christ in the world before we, before we go on to the, to the end of this gospel that uh, <clears throat> apparently what has put Jesus on the cross is that he has failed to rise to the standards that the Jews wanted him to, to rise to, that he failed their expectations. And so in great disappointment and without fear of who he is, they turned against him and they sent him off to be crucified. I think when we see Christ in the modern world, Christ in the present world, we know that the church um, is called his mystical body, that it is the present, the church is the presence of Christ in the world. And, uh, <clears throat> and it too becomes crucified because of its, of its failures, because it fails in the eyes of the expectation of humanity. And uh, in its failure, it therefore is pilloried, it therefore is rejected, it therefore is mocked, it therefore is jeered at, it therefore is marginalized. We have but to think of the phenomenon in, in Europe after the Second World War, when after two great world wars, the people realized that Christianity had failed to save Europe from those. What they didn't realize, of course, was that the failure was the failure of the people and not the failure of the sacramental church. And so it was infidelity that caused the church to be impotent in the face of the rise of the Third Reich, um, the rise of the Soviet Union, and so forth. And even, you know, the rise to power of Western secular nations who bear a great responsibility, at least for the horrors of the First World War, which was a war with, without much purpose and without much sense except to battle over the, the balance of power. So the church, Europe says, well, the church has failed us. And so 
um, the German bishops in it now say, well, since it has failed us, not only in, in the aftermath of the two world wars, but also now in the midst of the terrible abuse crisis, that we better go back and rebuild it from scratch again. Make it so that it fulfills our expectations. Make it so that it looks like the way we want it to look. That in effect, they're saying, since God has failed, um, we have to do it ourselves. Instead of, instead of looking and seeing, why did the church fail? Why was it, in, why was it impotent against the rise of the, of the, of the Third Reich and, and the rise of the Soviet Union? Why? And of course, it's the same reason that it struggles today, because of infidelity, because people did not accept it deep in their hearts. They used it as a social convention, or they used it as kind of a... Uh, uh, assuaging of the problems of the conscience while well, I go to Mass or I go to church every Sunday or something like that. So I don't have to really move much deeper into the mystery of Jesus Christ. And, and I can accept all the values of the world and I can judge the church accordingly and therefore justify my distance from it and justify my indifference to it. The very same thing that happened here on the cross, you know, if you really are God, you know, and if this really is your church, then save it. Saving it means do with it what we want you to do with it, not, in fact, what is redemptive for humanity. For the church also must suffer, and the church does suffer. Father Hugo Rana refers to her as the, as the dusty pilgrimess of the desert, <clears throat> um, traveling past the rusted weapons of her glory and all of this kind of thing. Um, yeah, the, the church... The church is the crucified Christ. It is not necessarily yet the risen Christ. And I think although the resurrection is inherent and, and embedded in the crucifixion, that when that, that is the age of, of perfection, that is the age of the parousia, that is the age when, behold, all things will be made new. In the meantime, we suffer the disgrace of our failures, just as Jesus is suffering the disgrace of his failures as the Messiah, as the King of the Jews. For certainly this pathetic, um, broken man hanging on a cross um, in, the, in, the first, in, the, in the first decade, in the, in the fourth decade of the, of the first century, um, for us to call him the, the chosen one, the Messiah, the King, it sounds contradictory and foolish and naive. And yet at the same time, let's go on with the gospel and see what he's able to do from this position of weakness, from this position of rejection, from this position of destruction. One of the criminals hanging there <clears throat> abused him. Are you not the Christ, he asked? Save yourself and us as well. So even those who shared his fate one of them at least was sarcastic and one of them was was probably the ultimate mockery because he himself suffering the death um, hurls the insult at Jesus if you were the if you were the Christ if you were the king of the Jews you would save me and yourself but the other spoke up and rebuked him and said to the to the to him um, the criminal have you no fear of God at all you got the same sentence as he did but in our case, we deserved it. We are paying for what we did, but this man has done nothing wrong. So all of a sudden, from the midst of pain and misery, from the honesty of a sinner, comes a testimony that Jesus is guiltless, comes a testimony that he is in fact God. Have you no fear of God at all, he said? 
when you have the same sentence, this man somehow or other sees the truth of what's happening on the cross. And in that truth of what's happening in the cross, he knows, he seems to intuit that, uh, that the Lord, in fact, instead of being destroyed, is triumphing in, this, in, this, in this, these hours of suffering on the cross. And, um, and he tells that to the other man. You know, you, you're caught up in the foolishness, in the foolishness of the folly of our world. But look, here is a man who is in the process of triumphing through his suffering and through his impending death. And then that thief said, we, I don't, we, we traditionally give him the name of Dismas, the good thief. Um, and then he says, <clears throat> Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And so he acknowledges that reigning from the cross, which is a tremendously important theme in the Gospel of John, um, that the cross, as a, as a matter of fact, is kind of the throne of victory. It is where the idea comes that, uh, that Jesus reigns from the cross and, uh, and that where it is, in fact, the glory of the Lord. And so he says, uh, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Somehow he understands, somehow he understands that the sign of contradiction is the real sign of power. For this ignominious death, as the Stations booklets say, this ignominious death is, uh, is one that will result in triumph. And in the triumph, he will be beyond all human expectations and demands and beyond the capacity of humanity to re-destroy him, to put him back upon the cross again, although they can and they do crucify his church throughout the ages, from age to age. And then Jesus answered him and he said, Indeed, I promise you, you will be with me. Today you will be with me in paradise. What... What, what power that is. He's able to say to this man that I can bring you into paradise. I can overcome all of this. And in overcoming all of this, I can bring you into the glory of the Lord, into the real glory of the Lord. Now we know that the word paradise meant various things in Jewish apocalyptic language. But it always seems to have had an association with uh, with immortality, with God, um, that somehow or other, whatever we thought of the resurrection, whatever the, the Pharisees believe the resurrection to be, or anybody, it means in some way, shape, or form an association with the immortality of the divine, whether it is, is simply in the blood of the ancestors or whether it is in the resurrection of the dead. And here it's very unclear what Jesus means. What is clear is that he is promising an eternity with the Lord. And, the, and he, can, he can deliver on this because he is, as the thief said, he is God. And he therefore is king and he is Messiah. He is sovereign over the sinfulness of the earth. And he takes that sinfulness of the earth and triumphs over it. I think that it's, um, <clears throat> it, it's something that, that we, I don't know, I think it's something that we can struggle with and something we have a hard time with. How many people, for instance, do we know who have left the church because of her failures and because of some of the personnel within them? How many people in the older generation say, well, I had a mean nun somewhere along the way? Or how, do, how many priests some, along the way said, well, some priest didn't do this, or some priest failed me in this way, shape, or form, and therefore, you know, I turn away from the church. It's in those very failures 
that we see, in fact, the vulnerability, the human vulnerability of the body of Christ. We see the wounds of Christ. We see the wounds of Christ in the in 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 religious and priests who fail miserably in their commitment to Jesus Christ. That's the, those are the wounds of the church. We see the very same thing in the failure of, of every believer, every member of the church. Their failures are the wounds of Jesus Christ on the cross. They are the ones that make, in fact, the church not credible in the midst of the modern world. We, we find that, and, and that the tremendous arrogance, I, I, uh, I, I read an article the other day um, about, I believe it's the Archbishop of Denver, came out with some kind of a statement about uh, the, the transgender issue. And, of course, there are those uh, from the Catholic congregations that said, well, you know, we can't tolerate his, we can't tolerate this, you know. They will, they will not win. Well, that's exactly, isn't that what the chief priests and isn't that what they said when Jesus was put on the cross? Look at this, he has failed. He cannot possibly deliver the goods. He cannot possibly win the struggle for the soul of Israel. For he, in fact, is going to die an ignominious and an ugly and a painful death. Well, how can you say that that's the Messiah? How can you say that that's the king of the Jews? And so the same taunts that, uh, that were thrown at Jesus on the cross are thrown also at the church. And the church is vulnerable to those taunts, as Jesus was, because they, it has failed to meet the expectations of people with false expectations of what the church is supposed to be. It's not supposed to be just a feel-good organization. It is supposed to be the work, the redeeming, the suffering and redeeming work of Jesus Christ in the midst of the world. And when we acknowledge that, then we also know that our own personal failures, shameful as they may be, that in healing and healing those through the sacrament of reconciliation, through the sacrament of penance, we are also then healing the body of the church and we are making the church stronger by our confession, our repentance, our absolution, our penance. Um, and so it is, it is medicinal, it is, a, it is a, a healing ministry of the church, healing those wounded by sin in their own personal lives, which brings about the healing of the church in its wounds, in its own corporate wounds that come from the infidelity and the apostasy of those who are supposed to be leaders but are not, who are supposed to be believers but are not, who are supposed to be a members, active members of the church but truly down deep inside are not. They are the ones, and oftentimes jeering at the Lord, they are the ones saying, you know, what can he do to us? You know, so-and-so and so-and-so -and -so get away with this. Why should not we get away with that as well? Um, and this is part of the reason why it's also very important for us to have a sense of the end times. Because without this sense of ultimate judgment um, and, and, and ultimate justice, that somehow or other the wounds, the wounds of Christ and the wounds of the church seem somehow or other intolerable. Jesus, however, overcomes the wounds of the crucifixion through the resurrection, and so too does the church overcome the wounds by the resurrection within her of the faithful who have followed and 
partaken of of the the sacraments of the Lord Jesus Christ through from dispense through the benevolence and of of his mystical body. So when we when we go over this, we're we're confronted with the ultimate and the fundamental paradox, the contradiction of Christian life. That is where oftentimes failure means success, and oftentimes success means failure. We we see that those who cling to their life in this and their life in this world will lose it, and those who give up their life for the sake of the kingdom will save it. That all through, even through the, the Beatitudes and throughout the gospel, we find this contradiction between between this the, the we might even call them the secular expectations of of the people and uh, and the mystery of salvation revealed through Jesus Christ. There is triumph any time that you can squash the church. There is triumph any time you can def defame her. There is, is, is triumph any time that you feel that you can take away from her, her power, her position, her wealth, anything. We, we find, you know, the vandalism of the Catholic churches. We find the rejection of, 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 of the teachings of the Catholic church, even from many people within it, causing the wounds of Christ again to open on the cross. And it becomes then behooves us then through the sacrament of penance and reconciliation in receiving healing for ourselves, we bring also healing to the church. And, and in the end, in the end, while the church may certainly hang on the cross of the world throughout its journey into the end of time, that just like Jesus at the end, it will, of course, be in glory in the resurrection of the dead and in the salvation of sinners. Um, I think this is, this is an important reflection, especially in the world in which we live, where there is a growing sense of the marginalization of Christianity entering into what we call the post-Christian world, where the Christian values that basically brought us a civilization are unraveled and, and rejected, and that a kind of barbarism returns into the heart of, of the society, even of the Western societies, which had at one time been so thoroughly Christian. We see the first, we see the first vicious act of barbarity in the attitude toward abortion in our modern societies that without denigrating the great personal struggles that women might have, um, and with understanding, you know, the, the, the emotional trauma that many would go through, we nevertheless, nevertheless can never find the solution being the murder of human beings. Um, actually, by the choice of a single individual, not even a, not even a due process. And we find now in some of the, some of the, one of the laws, I, I, I don't know where it was, I think in the state of Montana of all places, that there was, that there was rejected any kind of legislation to protect even those born um, after a botched abortion. And so the child is alive outside the womb and even then they refuse to protect the life of the child. It's child sacrifice. And, uh, and we associate that always with paganism and what barbarity. And we, we have the same today. We find also that in not understanding the role of suffering of Jesus on the cross, that <clears throat> we are deciding all over the place, um, well, if anybody suffers, then their life has no meaning and they might as well be exterminated. And so this whole idea of euthanasia becomes part of the medical profession in the modern Western world. 
a thought so heinous that once again it's on the other end of life, had be having the same cavalier attitude toward uh, toward the creatures of God as as we had in in the beginning of life with the whole abortion business. And, and, and I think, I know that the abortion thing and the euthanasia thing is, is very controversial. I think, that, um, I, I think that we have to look at it, though, for what it is. And there's a, there's a difference in it between the emphasis on the, on the well-being, you know, on the rights of a woman versus the rights of a child. Um, very seldom is a woman forced into pregnancy, however. And so there is a free will activity going on all the way into the creation of the child. And, uh, and so it, it does have human DNA, and the DNA is separate from, from the mother's DNA. It's therefore a separate and individual person. And certainly the end-of-life issues. Does suffering have no value? Then Jesus' life had no value. <coughs> and if his life had no value, then there is no redemption. There is no overcoming of death, and there is no eternal life. I think these are the issues that we deal with, and this is the framework of the questions that we have to ask ourselves. And and you know, rather than perhaps you know um, make huge public demonstrations or whatever we do certainly to raise consciousness that has a value. At the same time, it has it, the greatest and the strongest resistance is through the fidelity of God's people, through their willingness to suffer for the sake of the kingdom, their willingness to suffer for the fact that Christ died for them and to share in his suffering, to heal their wounds, and such doing heal the wounds of the crucified Christ, to heal their wounds in such a way, to heal his wounds in such a way that the title of Messiah and the title of King become credible to him in the context even of his own life. For here he reigns supreme from the cross. He is able to forgive the sinner who seeks the forgiveness. He is able to endure the jeering of the crowds. He is able to endure the insults of the, of the, the thief on the cross. And yet at the same time in his power he is able to say, I promise you, today you'll be with me in paradise. He says that also to us, I promise you that you will be with me in paradise if you acknowledge who I am, if you accept the suffering and the redemptive suffering in my life and in yours, if you offer that up in conjunction with me as crucified, and if together then we will bring about the redemption and salvation of others in the world, then I promise you, Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com. Who bad?